and good, good day to all of you. I finally found something I like about Christmas. Everyone stayed home. The freeway was clear. That's the only thing so far. Well, today we're going to the book of Haggai and this series on the minor prophets. And for Diane, I'm going to entitle this Haggai and then in parentheses, revisit it. Because I gave a sermon in February of 96 on the book of Haggai. And there I identified Herbert Armstrong as the former temple and the one now to be built as the latter temple. Uh, the understanding is more complete today, and much has occurred to confirm that stance. Uh, you can go back to that sermon if you wish for different detail. Uh, though the message is the same, we'll de examine some different angles today made possible by being four years downstream from that sermon. Haggai means festive, as in festival or excitement or celebratory feelings. How does that fit the chastening and scattering that we've been studying in the Minor Prophets? From Amos through Zephaniah, we've seen sin and scattering, Laodiceanism and chastening, spiritual famine and pestilence, a destruction of the church because our hearts have not been right with God. Zephaniah paints a powerful picture of the day of the Lord and a financial crash. He tells us to gather ourselves in righteousness and meekness, and maybe we will be hit from what is coming. He further states that God will destroy spiritual pride and preserve a meek and humble people, and later on that they are to be identified as the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem, both words. He also says in the end of the book of Zephaniah that he will bless her abundantly. I'm not going to go into all of that, but I would refer you to the 1999 peace sermons that I gave in South Africa in a series about peace, and particularly the third and the fourth sermons of that series in the context of what we are looking at in Haggai today. God encourages this daughter of Zion not to have slack hands, but to work. That's in Zephaniah 3 and in verse 16. He says, fear not and work. Now let's understand where it appears we are in time as we go into the book of Haggai. Ezra and Nehemiah describe the people as they came out of 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Now, when this occurred, once they were freed to leave Babylon, most stayed there. Only 42,360, I believe, actually removed themselves freed. That is how comfortable they had become with where they were. Now, when these 42,000 arrived in Jerusalem, even those who had the gumption to get up and leave Babylon after 70 years were not really ready to do God's work. But they were more interested in making good lives for themselves. They were not ready to put God's temple first. Also recall the early New Testament church. As a viable entity, it lasted about 70 years counted either from the beginning of Christ's ministry and the training of the leadership for that church 
or three and a half years later when the church was officially founded there in Acts 2, until John, who from the Isle of Patmos pronounced it basically dead on its feet, about 96 or 97 A.D., dead because false ministers had come in, people had been led away, and a great falling away had occurred, so that that church was almost unrecognizable at that point, and shortly thereafter disappeared for about a hundred years. So that lasted about 70 years. Page forward to today. We see an end-time church about 70 years old. I don't know exactly how God counts the 70, and I think he's obscured that promise on purpose so that we might not know the exact timing. Um, four years ago, I thought, well, maybe God's counting from 1926, 1927, and maybe we would reach the end of the years of 70 in 1996 or 97. Thank you. I thought it would start over time again here. Hopefully not. I hope you're all hearing. Anyway, where, where was my thought here? Uh, perhaps God doesn't start counting this modern day time until uh, 1930 or 33 or 34, which would put it on out possibly to 2003 or 2004. I don't know. But it appears that we have been here about 70 years now, give or take three or four, one direction or another. And whether God counts the last three and a half years of tribulation as part of it, or whether he counts the time that the church flees, uh, is the end of the 70 where he frees her. And I think that is more the case, not the return of Christ. And we'll see that uh, more clearly in the book of Zechariah. But we see a church very similar to what John was dealing with, uh, just before the turn of the century in 96-97 A.D. Um, we see it beset by false ministers. We see a falling away and a church hardly recognizable from what it was a few years ago. It is also a church not ready to really jump in and build something. Many people are simply weary. They are frustrated. They are cynical, sarcastic. Some bloated on Babylon and drifting for the most part, and the church is still being scattered. As people give up, quit, um, or whatever impels them to sort of give up on what is going on. Now, we are counseled in Isaiah 52, which we've read before, and I'm not going back there for sake of time, and verses 1 and 2 and so on, to break the yoke of Babylon, to sit up. Quit laying down and get to work. So the church has been, in one sense, in captivity all these years, in the midst of a sinful nation and world. We have resisted to some degree, but apparently our hearts were more in this world than on God, so he has scattered us to get our attention just before the 70 years ends, because he has something in mind that needs to be done. So why festive? in this context, when the church and the stones of the temple are coming down around our ears. 
Well, the answer really is that Haggai represents the beginning of the turnaround. It is a pivotal book in the history of the church and a pivotal book, a change of direction entirely in the context of the minor prophets. It represents a turn from the scattering until there is only a small remnant left to a gathering together of that small minority or remnant. So in place of scattering, God is going to begin to gather. That is a total change in direction from what we have seen so far in the messages of the minor prophets. We've had hints of that in various books that it would, would come, but Haggai is the turning point. It also, the book of Haggai that is, is just for the church. No longer do we have to try to sort out what might apply to the church and what might apply to the physical peoples of Israel because the book of Haggai turns specifically, only, solely to the church itself, to the building of the house of God or the temple of God. Therefore, it represents a joyous, festive, barn-raising type celebration. I use the term barn-raising for it appears to happen in a very short time. A hundred years ago, all the neighbors would get together, and in one or two days, they would raise and complete a barn, and they would do it for each other. Now, we've seen the scattering occur in a few years, I guess really from, say, 1993 or 94 to the year 2000, about six years. But this has been happening intensively, and I'm not saying it's going to stop. I think it will continue because only a remnant are going to respond, as we'll see before we're through today, and the rest will continue to scatter. But for those who are turning to God with all their hearts, with all their mights, and putting their focus on God, it is a joyous day, a joyous thing to consider. Now, the scattering began in Dribble several years earlier, but I, I think mainly we could say 1993 or 1994, people began to come wholesale out of worldwide and then began to scatter from larger to smaller groups from there. Now, Haggai prophesied for only six months, and several dates are given in Haggai which likely will become very significant for us. I don't know that those particular dates on the Jewish calendar will be the ones but maybe the time element in between will become important. In other words, God says this will happen in one to two months. This will happen a month later. It may very well have to do with the calendar itself and on these specific dates mentioned in Haggai, but it might just be the interim period, the amount of time taken. We'll see on that. Now, as we get into the story, we shall see God stirs things up and what appears to be a very short time. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if the latter temple is assembled in a very short period of time, shorter by far than what has been required for the scattering. The scattering has taken time because it takes time for human beings to get their perspective right. It takes time for us to repent. It takes time for a remnant to get their spiritual uh, ducks lined up, so to speak. But once God has the stones ready, the timbers prepared, it doesn't take long to put a barn raising together if all the pieces fit. It could be a few weeks or a few months even. 
considering the 1335 days of Daniel 12, because it appears that there is a 30-day and a 45-day period there before the 1260 starts, 1335 to 1290 to 1260, and then the 1260 of 42 months persecution and place of safety and so on. Uh, we always thought maybe that was to gather in Jerusalem and then to flee to Petra. Uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to that exact scenario now, but perhaps the time element could be there, the recognition of where leadership is and God quickly without the sound of hammers putting the latter temple together. Just a thought. Don't know that it'll happen that way exactly. Again, I would urge you to listen to the Peace series on peace from this past feast. Now, Haggai represents all the good things of Isaiah beginning to come to pass in the church. No more gloom and doom, no more scattering in those who respond, but a building of something that will never end. I'm going to go back to the end of Zephaniah and pick this up uh, from last month's sermon in verse 13 of chapter 3. The remnant of Israel, those who are faithful out of the church, shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. That's reminiscent of Ezekiel 34, down verses, uh, what, 18 to 20, somewhere through there, where it talks about the right kind of leadership, making God's people feel at peace and safety once more, instead of being badgered and slaughtered, uh, butchered, and uh, misused and abused. Then he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Unbridled joy, in other words. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil any more. Never again will we see evil once this transition occurs. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion, let not your hands be slack. Again, I would refer you back to Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, which identifies these terms as belonging to the church. We've covered that many times, so I'll not turn back there. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. The book of Haggai uses the term Lord of hosts 15 times, showing his omnipotence, his power, his might, his ability to do what we are going to see today. The Lord thy God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. See, this is a prophecy in Zephaniah. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of you. So those people who are turned off, tuned out, frustrated, upset, uh, bewildered, confused, he'll bring to the solemn assembly if their hearts are right, to whom the reproach of it was a burden, and certainly the last years have been a burden to us. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that halts or limps, and gather her that was driven out, and I will give them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, or gather you, in the time that I gather you, well he says that, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Lord. So there is your pivotal uh, transition statement. When I turn it around, when I turn it back, when I begin to gather instead of scatter, scatter, 
So that's the end of the book of Zephaniah and sets the stage for the book of Haggai. So let's get to the book itself. It is addressed to, first of all, Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Zerubbabel means seed of Babylon. Not a real spiritual sounding name. But what does it mean? Well, he was born there. He was born in captivity. Just as the leader of the latter temple today has been born in Babylon. This system, this world, has lived in it, been a part of it. He's also of the line of Judah, or called the governor of Judah. Christ was born into the Babylonian system as well. But he never gave into it one inch or one second. So it's remarkable that he was born in Babylon, and Zerubbabel was born in Babylon, and yet he has turned from that, departed from that, and is seeking God. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Tribally, he had to have been a Levite, uh, being the high priest. Of course, nationally of Judah as well, since Judah, Benjamin, and uh, Levi were one national nation. Now, as we shall see later, he is described as a brand plucked out of the fire, as indeed we all are. Let's see that in Amos 4. Amos 4 and verse 11. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. So back in Amos, God is still showing us what it is that we need to do. So Joshua is represented here as the high priest. He had to be cleansed himself to be able to represent a defiled people needing to be cleaned themselves. Now in Zechariah, we will identify these two, Zerubbabel and Joshua, in detail, but we should not get ahead of the story. I want to continue to lay this out just the way God lays it out. So to begin Haggai, there is no detailed description of who these people are. They are somewhat anonymous. You look at the church today. Do we see any leadership akin to the type of leadership that is going to be shown here in the book of Haggai? No. Kind of like the old Lone Ranger thing. Who are these masked men? They're anonymous. In other words, they begin their work in relative obscurity. No one really knowing who they are. And we'll see. Their work is just the church. It has nothing to do with preaching the gospel to the world. Haggai is written to the leadership and deals with just the church. Remember, the minor prophets are a message to the church. And once Haggai begins, the church is the only consideration. The physical nation, as we'll see, is left out entirely. It's about to crash, as Zephaniah points out. And God turns away from it just to the church. So, the setting for the book of Haggai is right now. It is today, not later. Do you believe that? 
Most people in the church do not. So let's get on down now. Chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we've already shown that this was written, first of all, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua in verse 1. Now verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. There's that word. The Lord of hosts, the mighty one, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. In other words, Joshua and Zerubbabel, or the other way around, Zerubbabel being first, will encounter opposition. The people just don't think it's time. Most people in the church do not believe it's time. This is the beginning of the incredible gathering of God's people and their deliverance from Babylon, a deliverance so great we will no longer refer to the Red Sea, but to this. Let's see that in Jeremiah 23. We've seen this before in this series, but I want to, uh, to touch it once more here. Jeremiah 23, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days come. Now, this is the context of the scattering, the pastors destroying the flock, and so on. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Well, this is the beginning of that deliverance. The church, remnant of the church, will first be delivered, and then, of course, once the physical nation goes into captivity, as the church has been in captivity, it also will be delivered. So the Lord of hosts is a reference to the majesty, the power, the capacity to deliver of the omnipotence and the undisputed sovereignty of God, that he can cause this to happen. Now, men have tried, haven't they? Men have tried to unite the church. Men have tried to get the scattering to cease. Men have had all kinds of programs to bring about unity, but all have failed. This is something only God can do. There's still a problem that must be hurdled before this can happen, and that is this attitude that is brought out in verse 2. This people say. Now, the implication here to the leadership is clear that it is time to build the latter temple. And God lets the leaders know first. He addresses them first. Then it changes. The word came to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Verse 3, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your fine homes, your spiritual houses, and this house lie waste? We are in a period of time right now when there are many, many spiritual houses that broke off from Worldwide Church of God. You can count them in the hundreds if you count real small ones. And those are the houses people are dwelling in. Now, this is not talking about, it may be in a larger sense later on, but I don't think overall the message is about our physical homes. Because a little later on it talks about uh, famine and pestilence and so on in this very book, just a few verses down. And we have not, at this point, suffered any physical famine, pestilence. It has been spiritual Famine of the Word, Amos 8. 
So that is the main emphasis of what God is talking about here. Is it time to stay in your fine church homes and this house lie waste? People are comfortable wherever they are. It is imperative, brethren, that we identify this house, quote unquote. What is God talking about here? Well, he's talking about the one he is working in. He is not going to work through all these dozens and hundreds of spiritual houses. You can go back to the Song of Songs. Maybe I'll flip back there just for a couple of minutes. The Song of Songs. And let's see something about this. This book is talking about Christ and his bride. I have no doubt of that. Verse 8 of chapter 1, he calls her the fairest among women. Churches are women in the Bible very frequently. And this is the fairest among women, the one he chooses. He says, go your way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed your kids beside the shepherd's tent. So the emphasis to this woman is to take care of the sheep. Uh, you can go through here. He calls her, oh, my dove, in chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5, I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, daughters, plural, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. Then it talks about him coming from the wilderness. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 3, Go you forth, or go forth, O you daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him. So the daughters of Jerusalem are told to look to Christ, Solomon being a type of Christ here. There are several places in here where uh, he calls her, let's see, here it is in chapter 5, verse 9, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O you fairest among women? So God is going to select one of the daughters who came out of worldwide, the fairest of them all. And the others become jealous here. I don't pick those uh, verses up with my eye right at the moment. But the point I wanted to make is he calls this one he is going to marry the fairest of all the daughters. We couldn't have understood this a while back. Let's go back to uh, Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Here he's describing a virtuous woman or church. And I won't take time to go through the, the whole thing, but in verse 29 he says, Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. So God singles her out and talks to her. Verse 31, Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. So God is going to choose one of the daughters who excels the others. Micah 4. Take one more on this. Micah 4. We've already covered this in some detail, but we'll hit it again very quickly here. Micah 4, um, verse 8. O you, and you, O tower, or watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Not daughters of Zion, not daughters of Jerusalem, but one. So God is going out of all this mess to choose some leadership which already exists somewhat anonymously at the moment 
and he is going to put it together. Notice Psalm 127 now. Psalm 127. And we'll read verse 1. We sing this one quite often. Psalm 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house. Think church here, spiritual house. They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman walks, wakes, but in vain. The watchman of the Ezekiel is referred to here prophetically. So God is going to choose one. Now I want to go back and lay a little bit more background in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, this is a sermon about Haggai, and uh, we don't have time to go through the whole book of Ezra, or books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but these make very, very good supplemental reading to what we are discussing in the book of Haggai. The pattern for the book of Haggai is found in Ezra and Nehemiah, but Haggai itself is specifically an end-time book. It occurs at the time of the shaking of the earth, the context of the day of the Lord. So it's not something that referred to a temple way in the past, but something that exists at the end, as the whole series of the minor prophets are end-time prophecies. But the pattern is here, and you can find much, much more detail about what must be done, because Ezra and Nehemiah are talking about the latter temple built under Zerubbabel and Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 3, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord. Something had to be done. They had to leave where they were. Now, physically speaking, in this particular context, but let's understand it spiritually. We may have to leave the spiritual houses we are in and find the leadership that God is using to build his house. So, they went up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, verse 5. Jerusalem is the church. We understand that. Uh, then they had all kinds of enemies come up, jealousies, problems, and the ensuing chapters 3 and 4, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Jerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. Some will cleave with flatteries. Some will try to get in on what will begin to happen because it will become an exciting thing. But it's not come one, come all. Verse 3, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, or Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build to the Lord God of Israel. And then these people troubled them, verse 4, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So there's going to be opposition when God begins to put his church back together. Satan does not want to see it happen, nor do his minions. Verse 24 of chapter 4. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the opposition was able to slow down the process. In one sense, you might say worldwide was the temple of God, but the work was interrupted. And the whole 
everything that had been built basically began to be torn down. So God had to start over because there was a great opposition. Now, chapter 5. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem, and in the name of the God of Israel, then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And people questioned, who told you to do this? Verse 3. But they continued building the house of the great God. Verse 8. Then asked we those elders and said to them, Thus, who commanded you to build this house and make up these walls? Verse 11, Thus they returned us the answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and build the house that was built these many years ago, which a great king of Israel builded and set up. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath. The ministry provoked God in this day and age, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. I think we could insert to Koch there without any problem. And then it talks about the vessels of gold and silver, the people of God who had been being refined, being given over to this world, back to Babylon. But now they say that silver and gold, those precious people of God are going to be brought back and the house of God will be built in his place. And for sake of time, we'll not read any more of this, but I wanted to give you a little preview there to, so you can think about it if you go back and read those because they're important to the story here and add a great deal of detail. Now, he says it's time to leave your fine spiritual houses and work for the one God is choosing. So that makes it important to find out where it is. You can go to Isaiah 5 and find that many, many houses have been built, house to house, field to field, so that there is no room. And God says they'll not be lived in. They're going to come down. And we're not talking physical famine here. We're talking about the spiritual. So keep that in mind. You need to find, quote, unquote, this house, the one God is talking about. Now, what does God tell us to do? Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Take stock. Look at the fruit. In other words, look at the houses we happen to be in. And this table leads thousands of people who are not part of the organization that I'm standing in. And God is telling the whole church here, this people, the people he's called out, to deeply ponder the fruits of what is happening in their spiritual house. Does it fit the description that we're about to read of? If so... God says, come out of there and identify where the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, is today. We will get into quite a few specific keys to identity of Zerubbabel and Joshua in Zechariah and related prophecies and passages, but I don't want to do that today. As I said, we cannot get ahead of the story. Again, consider that Zerubbabel and Joshua are laboring in relative obscurity. They're not identified by Haggai. That comes in Zechariah. It is up to us to find them. Once the 1260 begins, the church flees, it may be too late. We need to find them now, since building the temple is the most important project. Now, people say this is not the time. The time has not come. But we already saw, he told the two leaders, 
The time is now, but the people don't believe it. So he says, consider your ways. Verse 6, you've sown much and bring in little. You've tried to do this, you've tried to do that. Look at all the organizations out there trying to preach the gospel, trying to convert people from here and there. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Now, this can apply to our physical lives as well, but the context here is of the church. And all these efforts that we're going to, and people are working hard out there, thinking they're going to do a great work. But look around. What is happening? Is any of this coming to fruition? All these lofty goals? Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, Consider your ways. Think about this. Ponder it. Look around and see. Hey, you know, these people said three, four, five, six years ago, we're going to go out and do a great work. God is going to bless us. And we'll preach the gospel around the world as a witness. Don't you see a lot of futility out there for those who are trying to do this, whether they did big or small? Consider it. Take stock. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And now he gives some, us some more instruction. Consider your ways. Verse 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Now what is a mountain? A mountain is a government. And Bible prophecy. A, a, a mountain is an organized group. It does not say mountains. Not just any old mountains. The mountain. I looked up Holy Mountain on my, in my concordance and found it's mentioned 17 times from Isaiah through, I think it was uh, Malachi. 17 times God talks about the Holy Mountain or my Holy Mountain. In other words, go up to that which I have built, that which I have designated as mine, the Church of God, the organization of God. He's not saying go to the Baptists, the Methodists, the Hindus, the Catholics. No, don't go to the world. Go to my mountain to find people. Because those are the people that I'm working with, just those within my government, those who were called under Herbert Armstrong into worldwide, and many of whom have since split off, and bring wood and build a house. What is wood? Well, it's pieces of trees. What are trees? I can give you several examples. I won't turn to them at the moment, but you can look in Ezekiel 17, Zechariah 11.1. 1. Uh, where else would you go? Uh, Isaiah 41.19, I think it is. He'll plant seven trees in the wilderness. He talks about three big trees being torn down there in Zechariah 11, or felled. And that's way downstream, too. But it happens after this leadership is shown the way to go. So the scattering and the fall of some of these spiritual houses comes way downstream from what we're talking about here. Even in the middle of the scattering, he says, the gathering will begin. I think that's the message here. All right. You don't want to proselyte if you're the leaders uh, indicated here and steal from another man's flock. But once these trees begin to, cut, uh, begin to be cut down on the mountain, 
see many individual trees growing on the mountain of God. It is split into many trees. But as the branches are cut off and fall to the ground, they become wood. It can become firewood or it can become timbers to build a temple. As long as it's growing as a tree there, you, you leave it alone. But once it becomes wood, once it is off the tree, then it's fair game. And in Ezra, it talked about stones and timbers being used to build the temple. We all understand we're lively stones, and in this analogy, timbers as well, using, being used as pieces and parts of the temple of God. So, go there and build a house after you get the wood, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Lord. He's the one that is going to have to do this because men cannot. You looked for much. Here he tells us again what, what the situation we're in. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow it apart. So people are building apart from what God wants done, and he keeps blowing it apart. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. So he makes a distinction between the house he is going to work through and all these other houses that he is going to blow apart, or trees he's going to cut down, whichever analogy you use. Therefore, the heaven over you has stayed from dew, and the earth has stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground brings forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. So he's rehearsing what we have been talking about from Amos, or from Hosea, down to this point. He's telling about the spiritual famine of the word. He says, because you were doing the things you thought needed to be done, and you were ignoring what I want done. Get busy building the house, taking care of the church, not going to the world. You're going to the wrong mountain for your wood. Then, verse 12, Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, the faithful remnant, those who are listening, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. So they began to tremble and realize, man, we've been on the wrong wavelength here. We've been going about this wrong. We need to change our approach. Verse 13, Then spoke Haggai the Lord's messenger and the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Gives the confidence necessary to do this. And the Lord stirred up the leaders and the people uh, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, the end of verse 14, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God. In other words, God stirs them up to come and to work to build the latter temple. Now, let's go to chapter 2, the seventh month, the 21st day of the month. He started this prophecy on the 6th month, the first day, so we're looking at uh, less than two months later. <coughs> he says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to the residue, the remnant, that which is left in the bottom of the barrel, in other words, saying, 
Less than two months later, see why I say this may be a short work when God begins to really assemble it? Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Ezra 3.12 says the ancient men would be able to look at the former temple and the latter temple and make a comparison and that the comparison would be that worldwide was nothing. So this proves that the latter temple and the former temple happen in the end time because there are no men among us that are old enough to look back on Solomon's or uh, Ezra's or Herod's original temple and compare it to the end time. This comparison as an end time book has to be between the former temple and the latter temple, that which was built and destroyed and rebuilt. And I would assume that we'll probably have to refer back to the 50s and 60s when it was at the zenith of its spiritual power before the decline began in the 70s and it was almost completely off track in the 80s and then went to the Babylon in the 90s or the 80s and 90s. But when this latter temple is built, there will still be ancient men around, men old enough to have compared the very best of worldwide with what God rebuilds. So it has to happen in our lifetimes, within the lifetimes of men who could analyze it from the 50s and 60s, I think. Yet now be strong, was the rubble bell, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So God is going to oversee this. God is going to do it. He is the one behind it. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, fear you not. I'm going to make this like Egypt, he says. Never fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the one who has the power to do this, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. End time prophecies begin to come to pass. In a little while, he says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Somewhat reminiscent of Acts 2, where they were all gathered. The church had been put together, at least as big as it was to that point, and then the power of God appeared, and the Holy Spirit came. God is going to fill this latter house with glory. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. I called out these people. They're not going back to Babylon. I'm going to put them in my house. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Lord of hosts. I'll refer you there to Psalm 133. I won't go back to it, but how excellent or how wonderful it is that the people of God dwell together in peace and unity. Lom Armstrong's favorite chapter. Now verse 10 of chapter 2. And the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, so now we've gone from the sixth month first day to the ninth month, twenty-fourth day, a little over, what is that, three months, in the second year of Darius, that's when the temple began to be rebuilt there in Ezra, if you recall. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts again, Ask now the priests concerning the law. Well, God is going to give some more instruction here about what the ministry is to do. 
in order to get this thing the way it ought to be. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. The point being, filth is easily transmitted. Holiness cannot be readily transferred. It is real easy for the unclean to make the clean unclean. But it is almost impossible to do it the other way. The unclean defiles. So a difference has to be made. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people unclean, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands. That which they offer there is unclean. Who is this people, this spiritual nation? The church of God, the greater church of God. God says it's been unclean before me. It has to be made holy. A separation, a division has to be made between the good and the bad, the sinful and the righteous, between the rebel and those who truly wish to seek God. That is the job of the ministry today. God says, I don't like the way things have been. He reminds us of where we've of what we've studied here through these minor prophets. <laughs> he says, And now I pray you. Consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press vat to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet you turned not to me, says the Lord. The bulk, the majority of the church will not heed. Even through all the scattering and famine of the word, the church is not turning to God with its whole heart. Only a remnant will. Only a residue will. And that remnant will be used to build the latter temple. God rehearses for us what we've just been through and what we're still going through. And lamentably, most of us are not responding in the way that he wished and wishes. Then he says, Consider now, from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Think about, from the time that God began to lay the foundation of the latter temple, Maybe he's even including the foundation of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. I'm not sure. But he says, think back. Verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Hasn't it been sowed? Didn't God sow the seed? Some fell on rocky ground, some among thorns, various categories. The seed has been planted. But the crop so far has not been what God intends the crop to be. But for that remnant, he's going to change things. That's what he's talking about here. 
Consider from this day. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yes, is yet the vine and the fig and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not been brought forth. From this day will I bless you. So at a particular time here, God is going to begin to bless the remnant under Zerubbabel and Joshua. And you and I need to find out where that is. We need to find out where our hearts are. And if we believe this is the time to build the latter temple or not. Because this people say it is not time. The majority will say it is not time. But God says it is time. And we're talking again here in the context of the scattering that is currently happening in the church that we've been examining for the last months and the minor prophets. Leading up to the day of the Lord. This is the turnaround. This is when God begins to gather his remnant to one daughter of Zion whom he is going to bless and the others will be jealous. Now the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree are not like wheat and tomatoes. You don't plant them and a few months later get the crop. These plants take years to develop. They have to grow from little seedlings, bigger and bigger, and then finally begin to produce fruit. I think that these plants are referring to men. God uses that type quite a bit in the Bible, of a vine or a fig tree or an olive tree, referring to a man. These men have taken time for God to develop. He's not going to just, bing, pick some novice, as Paul warned Timothy not to do, and put them in charge of building the latter temple. He is going to pick men who have been seasoned, who have over the years been trained and taught, worked with, who are, I'm sure, among us today. Because God does not do anything without preparing ahead. But they haven't produced anything that caused people to begin to say, oh, that's where God is working. So at one particular time, God says, from this day forward, these people will begin to produce fruits. The thing we don't know is when that day is, for sure. We don't know for sure maybe who they are, but maybe we had, begin, had better begin to look around and try to ascertain that. Because God is going to draw his people from all these houses on the mountain, all these trees on the mountain, together as a remnant from all the churches that are out there. He is looking for those whose hearts are being changed. And he's going to bring them to the proper leadership. So at some point in time, we're going to see some production, some fruits here, that is going to make it clear to those who have an ear to hear and an eye to see where God is building the latter temple. Now let's go on down. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the fourth and twentieth day of the month, still the ninth month, same day, but it's a different message. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I notice here it doesn't say in a little while. It did say that back in chapter, or well, same chapter, uh, and verse 6. It is a little while, and I will shake them. So we've progressed here. We're still in the same month, not a long period of time, in other words. And he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. So we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, down to the wire down to the, I hate to say it, 
the gun lap here. At the end of the Minor Prophets, when God turns his attention to rebuilding rather than scattering, the scattering will continue outside the daughter of Zion. But within the daughter of Zion, growth and unity and peace will begin to occur. So that is the setting of the book of Haggai. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. So they'll fight among themselves, the nations of this world. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you as a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. At that time, God will make Zerubbabel not just the leader of the church, but he will put his seal of approval, that's what a signet is, a signature ring, where you seal something as being valid, as being that which meets your approval. God is going to put his seal of approval on Zerubbabel and make him stand before the nations. That's where he stops. But he says, get busy building the church. Now is the time to do it. We're at the, the middle of this famine. It's going to continue. But God rehearses that here in the book of Haggai and says, you didn't respond, most of you, but the remnant will come and will work. But we need to be very, very busy finding out where that work is today. Your life could depend on it, brethren. Where God is working is where he's going to do this turnaround. This house, he says, is where I'm working. You need to leave your other homes, your spiritual houses, and find that where I am working, doing what I want done. The focus will be on the church, not on the world, because the rebel bell is not made a signet or a, given the seal of approval by God to go to the world until the end of the book, when the shaking starts. Meantime, the church has to be built. That is the thing God is doing right now, building the church. So it behooves us to get involved. Now, time-wise, Zechariah begins his message right in the middle of the book of Haggai. And he adds much detail and will answer many questions that we've raised in the book of Haggai. Where is this? Who is this? Who are they? What are they to do? We've only touched on it a little bit, and I've made the bold statement that these men, whoever they are, will be working just with the church, not going to the world. The book of Zechariah will prove that. So there are a lot of things we'll get to in the book of Zechariah, so stay tuned. Uh, it gets even more exciting, this turnaround, and what God is going to begin to do. I've been looking forward to getting to Haggai and to Zechariah because... I feel like a broken record in a way going through this scattering and pain and chastening and all these things God is doing to us to get our hearts to turn, to recognize that he is working now, that he wants something done now. But this isn't just a bunch of musty old prophecies about some people long ago or about the physical nations of Israel out here. It's talking about the church. And he turns his full attention to it and says he is going to turn it around and he has the power of doing to do it because he is the Lord of hosts as he averse 15 times in this one little book. 
It is going to be an exciting time when God turns the spirit around and makes it full of peace and unity and harmony and love and brings glory to it. I want to be part of that, and I'm sure you do as well, and we'll discover a great deal more detail about it in the book of Zechariah when we pick up next sermon that I have, God willing.